Morning, everyone. Welcome to Chatham Community Church once again. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're joining us this morning. Uh, I'll say what I say almost every week. If you're a guest, whether it's your first time or your first time in a long time, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I'll be just outside the doors at the end of the service. Come say hi. Uh, I'd love to hear your name, a little bit about you know how you found us at Chatham Community Church and uh, what your experience was like this morning. And also, if you are new, whether it's today or you're relatively new, uh, right after the service today, we're having something called Starting Point, which is a time where we gather folks who are relatively new to our community. Uh, it's a short gathering with me and a couple other key leaders where you get to hear a little bit about what Chatham Community Church is like, what, what we're doing here in Chatham County, and what it looks like to become part of our church community on an ongoing basis. A number of people who've attended those gatherings have seen that as a springboard not only to relationships here in the church, uh, but also to opportunities to serve and connect and engage, and that might be true for you today as well. So come join us. It doesn't matter if this is your first time. It doesn't matter if you forgot and just happened to be here. If you have the time, 15, 20 minutes, we won't be much longer than that because I get hungry and I need to go home to eat. Uh, so come join us, and we'll be right there just after the service. Uh, the Pan American Village in uh, San Juan, which is where I'm from in Puerto Rico, was completed in 1979, just before uh, the, the Puerto Rico got ready to host the Pan American Games that year. Uh, these buildings would host thousands of athletes from all around the region, and uh, it, it, would, it, would, it would either contribute or deter from a uh, fellowship and competitive environment, from it being a successful experience for the athletes, but also for, for, for a successful experience in Puerto Rico as a hosting country. Uh, the complex ended up being well-built, uh, well-organized. It created good community, good fellowship, and the games were a success. But after the games were over and the athletes all went home, there was no clear plan or path for what to do with the buildings, how to maintain them, and what kind of use they would be uh, given in the years to come. And so slowly but surely, uh, they fell into disuse and disrepair. There was no sort of direction, no guidance, no structure about how to use them or how to maintain them. And less than 20 years later, uh, many of the features that had been in the building originally, including walls apparently, had been removed and disappeared. There were no windows, and what was once a haven for elite athletes from around the, the region uh, was now a place where um, addicts squatted, uh, where violence happened and crime happened, and uh, it was a place to be avoided and an eyesore. Uh, around that time, uh, there were infrastructure developments in Puerto Rico, and it would have put those buildings right square in the path of being one of the first things that visitors to the island would see once they left the airport. So sort of it lit a fire under people. Something needed to be done. Unfortunately, by that point, there was no viable path to fix the buildings. The long-term disuse and disrepair, long-term not caring for a good purpose for these buildings led them to a point where there was no, nothing that could be done. All that was left was to tear them down. These buildings were lots of thought, lots of intentionality had been put in to put them to, to build them, to put them to good use. We had seen success for them being put to good use. Less than a generation later, they were good only for being torn down and hopefully in the future to build something new. Much like those buildings, there are times where there are areas of our lives, of our character, of our behavior that can deteriorate to such a point 
where it may feel like the only path away from deterioration, the only strategy to get us out of deterioration is drastic action for change. In many recovery uh, circles, uh, they associate this sort of sensation with the idea of hitting rock bottom. And whenever you talk to people who are in recovery circles about the idea of rock bottom, you get this sense that it is, there is pain, there is shame, and there is loss associated with rock bottom. Those are some of the things that actually propel drastic change. But here's the thing, it takes a while to get there. It took nearly 20 years for the buildings to get to the point of no return. It takes a long time for areas of our character, areas of our behavior, areas of our lives to deteriorate to such a point where it feels like the only recourse is drastic action. So what if, what if we could tell what some of the warning signs were when we were on a path towards rock bottom? What if, what if we knew what we could do to change the course before we hit rock bottom? And let me be very clear, no one who hits rock bottom is without recourse. If you're feeling like you're at rock bottom, even though I'm going to talk today about the kinds of things that we can do to identify that we are headed towards rock bottom, if you are at rock bottom, if you feel like you're already past that point, there is hope for you, there is, uh, there is a chance for you, there is grace for you, there is mercy for you. Just because I'm talking about the journey there doesn't mean that if you've gotten there, you are without recourse. There is hope for you as well. But what if we knew what we could do to change the course of our lives before we got to the point where it felt like all we could do was crumble? We're in the home stretch of our series that we've titled Age to Age, the big story of God's faithfulness. And what we've been doing throughout this series is looking at the entire arc of the Old Testament. And we've been doing a couple of things. One is we want to organize our Old Testament closet. And what I mean by that is we want to get a sense of what is going on in the books of the Old Testament. Where do things fit together? Where do the characters go? Where do the books go? What's happening when and what produces the next thing? So in today's passage, we find ourselves near the end of the section uh, that is there that is called uh, Judah. We're finding ourselves near there. Uh, we're, we're, we're ending the time of the divided monarchy. What had happened is the people of God had split into two kingdoms. We saw that last week. And at this point, only one remains. But not long after the passage that we read today, the kingdom will fall. And the, the, the people of God will be taken into exile. And these are some of the books that are covered during that time. First and Second Kings, parts of Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, a number of the other prophetic books. And there are two key events that I want to highlight during that, that occurred during this time. One is uh, in the red box, the one that would be to your left, furthest to your left. It's not very clear, but what it says there, and this is an approximation, that in 722 BC, Samaria falls. And what that means is that the northern kingdom, and I'll show a picture later of where those two kingdoms are, the northern kingdom falls at that time. The people are taken captive by the Assyrians. And then the other one, and I can't see the year as clearly from here, uh, is the destruction of the temple. And that is, uh, at, just happens just after the passage we read, sometime after the passage we'll read today, the temple in Jerusalem falls. So those, that's what's happening uh, in the context of this passage. The other thing we've been doing in this series is reconsidering the picture that we get or the picture that we've received, the image that's been conveyed to us about who God is in the Old Testament. 
For many of us, the idea that we have of the God of the Old Testament is that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, he's a spiteful God, he's a vengeful God, he's all about like smiting people. However, as we've seen throughout this series, and as you can see actually if you read the entire arc of the Old Testament, the picture of the Old Testament God is consistent with the picture of the New Testament God. And actually, it's not an angry and spiteful or vengeful God. It's a God who is consistently remaining faithful to his people, whether they remain faithful or not, and especially when they prove themselves to be unfaithful. The passage we're going to read comes just before the kingdom of Judah is set to crumble. God sends a word to them. He tells them what's coming He tells them why it's coming, and he tells them what they can do to avoid it because they are inches away from hitting rock bottom. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to find the book of Jeremiah. We're going to read in chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry because it's going to be on the screen in just a second. So if you're looking for it, I'll give you a bit. And if not, we'll pull it up in just a second. Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. It's a hard passage to read. There's lots of heaviness to it. Let's dig in a little bit. Let me start by situating us geographically. So we've got the divided kingdom up there in the two colors. Now, the kingdom started as a united kingdom. So that when we read stories about Saul, about David, about Solomon, they are governing over a united kingdom, all 12 tribes together as one kingdom. But when Solomon's son ascends to the throne, he ratchets up some of the harsh practices that Solomon had put in place, and the kingdom splits. 
And so for about 200 years, there's a kingdom in the north, the kingdom of Israel. And they have nothing but kings that lead the people away from God. If you were to list all the kings that Israel had during its time, you would see that each one of them was evil. Each one of them led the people in unfaithfulness. And they end up being invaded by the Assyrians. They're taken into exile. And then the land is repopulated by people uh, from all the places that the Assyrians had conquered. And if you're familiar a little bit with the New Testament and you're aware that there's some tension between Jews and Samaritans, this is the origin of it. Samaria is in the northern kingdom, and the reason there's tension is because of that repopulation by lots of different people. In the south, we have the southern kingdom. There are two tribes there, Judah and Benjamin. And what the southern kingdom has that the northern kingdom doesn't is that it has Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not just the capital of the United Kingdom, but it's the place where they built the temple. And it's the place where God's presence was said to dwell. The southern kingdom fared a little bit better than the northern kingdom. They had good kings. But if you total them up, it's less than a handful. It's less than a handful. But the kingdom still remains at the time of Jeremiah. Years have passed, over a century since the fall of the northern kingdom. And maybe that has created a sense in the people that God will protect them regardless of whether they persist in unfaithfulness or amend their ways. These are the people that Jeremiah is preaching to. And here's the picture that we get of what's going on or what those people are like as Jeremiah is preaching to them. We get a sense that they are persistently unrepentant, persistently unremorseful, and persistently unconvicted. And that word persistently is key. Because I don't want any of us to think that a moment of unrepentance or a moment of unremorse or a moment where we don't experience conviction will doom us. What you have in these people who are hearing this message is centuries upon centuries upon centuries of these things. It's ongoing and the message is ignored. As Jeremiah names the things that they are doing, what you catch are echoes of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were the words that God had given them. When he said, I will be your people. We will do this thing together. I will bless you and through you, I will bless the nations. I will be faithful to you and and you will be faithful to me. And if you want to know what it looks like to be faithful to me, hear. And he gives them these Ten Commandments, these ten words that describes what it would be faithful to God. And you hear echoes of them in this message. You hear echoes of you will have no other gods before me. You hear echoes of you shall not commit adultery. You hear echoes of you shall not commit murder. Those are just three of the ones that are clearly alluded to in this passage. What you have then here is the fruit of long-term deterioration in their connection to God. You have them deteriorating every single part of the thing God told them they needed to do, the way they needed to be in order to be faithful to him. They are not just dabbling in alternate paths. They have committed themselves to an unfaithful way of living. They are persistently unrepentant. And as Jeremiah is preaching there, as he paints the picture, you get this sense that they seem to be okay with their current. Nothing were wrong. They have normed their current state, their current behavior. And it seems like they feel no sadness at the state of their lives, at the state of their kingdom, at the state of their treatment of each other, at the state of their treatment of God, even as they oppress some of the more vulnerable groups 
foreigners, widows, and orphans. Which is why Jeremiah has to call them into account for that. They seem to have no remorse. They are persistently unremorseful. Lastly, note that Jeremiah is outside the temple. Think of it. All these people are heading into the temple is the word of God. And when the word of God has to come, the temple is in such a state, the people are in, there, are in such a state that the word of God has to come outside the temple, outside the house where God was meant to dwell. They are hearing messages in the temple. They are hearing message at their other gatherings, but they are not messages from the Lord. They are the kinds of messages that tell them everything's okay. We're good. Keep doing what you're doing. Things are all right. And this has contributed to them normalizing and growing comfortable with their lack of faithfulness to the one who has been faithful to them. They remain persistently The first is to rationalize rationalizing sin. We're on the path to persistent unrepentance when we start growing comfortable with the things we say and do that miss the mark. That's what sin is. It's the kinds of things that we say and do and think and believe that miss the mark of the people we were made to be. People who love God with all our hearts, our souls, our minds and strengths. People who love our neighbors as ourselves. When we start normalizing and growing comfortable with the things that we say or do that veer from that, we are on the path to soul crumbling. Maybe we tell ourselves that it's not that bad. Maybe we tell ourselves, well, that's just what everyone does here. Maybe we tell ourselves that we had to do it because of what so-and-so did or because otherwise we'll be taken advantage of. Whatever path we take to get there, what we start to do is we start to set our own boundaries for what it means to live a life that is God. And we were not designed to do that. We were not designed. So watch for those times when you start to rationalize sin. Second thing to watch for is when we have decreased compassion toward the vulnerable. One way to gauge whether we might be on a path to becoming persistently unrepent, unremorseful, is to look at how we feel about our treatment or our lack thereof of those who are in desperate situations. Those who are in places where they need help and they have little to no power. They can't reciprocate what we do or don't do, whether in good ways or bad. In the Old Testament, this group was what was known as the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. Those were the most vulnerable people at that time. When our compassion towards similar groups in our society is absent, we will slowly progress toward feeling no remorse about the ways we, that they might be treated poorly, the ways uh, we might treat them poorly, and slowly we might progress to feeling no remorse about the way we treat people around us poorly. There's still a ways to go for it to get to our core, but look at the fringes. Look at the people furthest away from you. Look at the people you have least touch with, least connection with. If your compassion is low there, then if you leave it unattended, it will eventually get to your core. It will eventually affect how you're treating those around you. Look at the fringes. Lastly, the lack of voices that confront, challenge, and dissent. 
one of the things that characterizes our modern day is that we are more and more seeking echo chambers. Now, I'm not saying that echo chambers and silos are a new phenomenon, but what I've noticed in our current day and age is that we actively seek echo chambers and silos. Across the board, we want to be exclusively around people who think, act, and agree with us, who have the same view of how life ought to be. In those types of settings, the expectation of conformity is so high, becomes so high, that it's hard to point out when things are out of whack. It's hard to name it even when we feel it because we fear being cast out and not having a place to be. And so then it's really easy to make what is normative for the group, regardless of whether it's actually good or bad, good for all and the way things ought to be for everyone. And that creates antagonism between the echo chambers and silos. The people in the passage had gotten to that point. They had prophets speaking to them. Right? Jeremiah is not the only prophet at that time. They had other people prophesying to them. But they were prophets who told them that God was okay with the current state, that there was nothing wrong, that things were right. Why did they say that? Because it gained them favor. It gained them an audience. It, it meant people listened to them. It meant they looked good, which is why Jeremiah tells them, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. They are hearing something that's coming across as the word of God, but it is counterfeit and it is worthless. And echo chambers become that. And we welcome it sometimes. It's really comfortable. It's really easy to grow comfortable with an echo chamber and a silo. And here's the reason why. Because we're all prone to wanting to believe the kinds of things that affirm our current state and require little to no change from us. Say that again. We are all prone to wanting to believe the kinds of things that affirm our current state and require little to no change of us. All of us want to be told we're good. It's, it feels good to be affirmed. And honestly, change is hard. It's far better to hear you have nothing to change. But here's the thing. As long as we have breath, we have areas to change. That's true for me, that's true for you, that's true for all of us. This is the reality of the human condition. As long as we have breath, we have ways to grow. As long as we have breath, we have things in which we are mistaken. And that's true not just in benign ways, but all of us have ways in which we are mistaken, or will have ways in which we will be mistaken that are harmful. And we need to be in the kinds of spaces that will bring those things up or let us see them. We need voices that affirm and encourage us. Absolutely. Hear me say that. This is not a knock on affirmation. This is not a knock on encouragement. Those things are good and necessary. Uh, uh, a community that only criticized us and told us the way we were broken would suck. It'd be horrible. It'd be destructive. It'd be abusive. We need voices that affirm and encourage us, but we also need voices that will hold up a mirror and help us see what's there, what's truly there. We need voices that along with the Spirit of God will help us in feeling the conviction that tells us it's time for a change. It's time for a change. So hear me. If you've not had any one of those moments 
those moments where you realize, ooh, it's time for a change. In a long time, if that's not a regular part of your life, I'm not talking in big ways. Big ways maybe happen once in a while, but even in small ways, you may be in an echo chamber. You may need to seek out voices and spaces that bring conviction. One of the causes of the nuclear disaster in Chernobyl in the 80s, for those of us who remember that, was the fact that Soviet culture had created a silo and echo chamber. A, si a silo and echo chamber that said that whatever the Soviets designed was good and perfect and unfailing, incapable of failing. So here's what happened as you read reports or even watch dramatizations of what happened in Chernobyl. One of the leaders at the plant is so bought in to that echo chamber that it was impossible to conceive that the reactor could fail. It was impossible. So he ignored all the signs from his instruments and he ignored all the data, all the information that his engineers were giving him. Those who had all, were already seeing and feeling the effects of the meltdown. He ignored them. Now, maybe at that point, the meltdown was unavoidable, but the catastrophe that happened in the aftermath was not. It was a greater catastrophe because he wanted to believe the kinds of things that affirmed their current state and required little to no change. That was the culture. Let's step out of echo chambers. Let's step out of silos that we might not miss the messages that God is sending to us, the messages of rescue, the messages of reform, the messages of hope, the messages of invitation to change, the messages of good or for good all around us. God had called the people into a relationship with him. And in that relationship that he called them to be with him, he called them so that he could bless them. And in blessing them, it wasn't so that they would hoard the blessing. God didn't choose a people to the exclusion of everyone else. God chose a people for the sake of everyone else. God chose a people so that through him he could demonstrate to the world, this is what it looks like when you connect with me. This is what it looks like when you live in the way I created you to be. This is what it looks like when you are habitually living in the cycle of blessing and blessing and blessing. Through the people God chose, they were to be a conduit of his blessing for the rest of the world so that the whole world would turn to him. The people's lack of faithfulness is not just affecting the state of their souls and the state of their connection to God. It's affecting the ability, their ability to bless the nations. It's affecting their ability to bless the people around them. It's affecting the ability for people around them to see clearly who God is because in their unfaithfulness, in their ongoing disobedience, in their ongoing mistreatment of one another, in their ongoing abuse of the foreigner, of, of the widow, and of the orphan, they are misrepresenting what God is like. The nations are looking to these people they're seeing their behavior and they're telling themselves, well, the God who delivered them, because we've heard the stories, and the God who's prospered them, because there's no other way that this ragtag bunch of people would have ended up in the kingdom that they have, must be okay with this. That's what that God must be like. They are saying to the world, God is okay with murder. God is okay with theft. God is okay with the mistreatment of the vulnerable. Who would want to come to that kind of God? Who would? And that is true in some way today as well. How we behave and treat those around us communicates something to them about the God that we follow. 
How we behave and treat those around us communicates something to the world about the God we say we follow. When people see us and know that we follow God, they will in some way build a sense of what the God we follow must be like based on what we live. The scriptures talk about we are God's message to the world of what he is like. So here's the question. What picture of God are we painting for those around us? Now, I just said that we all have places to change. So I'm not saying that we can paint a full and accurate picture of how good and great and awesome God is on our own. We can't. But it is helpful to be aware of the places where we paint, we're approximating an accurate picture and the places where we don't. It is helpful to be aware. I am aware, for example, that if all people had to go on for what God was like was me, people would think God is impatient. God is impatient. Because I often find myself short on patience. I often find myself wishing things would rush. I often find myself wishing people would hurry up. I often find myself wishing things would be different. I often find myself snapping at people. Uh, when they're not as quick as I hope they would. So in this season, I'm trying to intentionally grow in practicing patience. Thank you for all your help. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I'm looking to intentionally grow in practicing patience. I'm paying attention to that because it's an area I know I'm painting an inaccurate picture of who God is. And I want it to be just a little bit better. I just wish it would go faster. There are two more reasons the people of Judah hit rock bottom that I just want to briefly mention. The first is that they've equated the mercy of deferred consequence with the sanctioning of their behavior. Let me translate for this. They've equated, oh, God hasn't punished us, therefore we must be okay. God has given them generation after generation to amend their ways and be faithful to the one who's been faithful to them so they could be good partners to bless the nations. God's committed to that plan. And he's going to give them chance after chance, warning after warning of what would happen. And they're still here. They've gotten to a point where they seem to have believed that because nothing catastrophic has happened, things must be okay. And I'm not even going to translate that into any sort of modern day because we're all prone to that. That's why some of us are surprised when we get stopped for speeding five miles above the speed limit when we were going 15 like five times in the last week and no one ever stopped us. So why is the cop stopping us now? Don't mistake the mercy of deferred consequences with a sanctioning of your behavior. Let's not do that. Last thing is that they play, the people of God, they place their trust in the artifacts and symbols of their religion rather than in the faithful one. What comes across in the passage is that the thing, the talisman that they are holding on to is that they have the temple. And because they have the temple and God dwells in the temple, surely God is not going to do anything that would put in jeopardy his house. Of course not, because God would look weak. God would disappear. Maybe there would be no one to worship him because they had the temple and God said he would dwell in the temple. They thought God wouldn't do anything to jeopardize his house. So they'd moved from trusting in the God who filled the temple to trusting in the temple itself. Now, we don't have a temple like they did, but we do experience God's blessing and favor as they did. And it's really easy to move from trusting in God's blessing and favor to presuming upon God's blessing and favor. 
So don't presume on God's blessing and favor. Here's the thing. God is predisposed to bless you. God is predisposed to grant you his favor. We can trust that. But let's not presume that regardless of what we do, we will, God will always sanction what we do. God will always bless what we say. God will always bless what we think. God will always bless what we do. Rather, rather, build a trust-filled connection with the one who is blessing you. And you will never be in danger of running out of blessing or favor. Because if you build that trust-filled connection with the one who blesses you, he will keep keeping his word. The people get this word from Jeremiah. This is an alarming word, but it's a word that says there is still time. But nothing changes. Just a little while after this, they'll be invaded. For those of us who've heard old Bible stories, Nebuchadnezzar may ring a bell. They are invaded. And the temple is destroyed. And the people are carried away into exile. And it will feel to them like God has abandoned them. And they will write songs that say that because they have hit rock bottom. But regardless, or or in spite of how they feel, God has not abandoned them. They are still a people. He didn't abandon them, and he doesn't abandon them. God never abandons us. Doesn't abandon us us as we're on our way to rock bottom. Doesn't abandon us when we hit rock bottom. What he does for the people is he brings them back to the land. The people are brought back to the land. A temple is rebuilt, and Jesus comes. God sends Jesus again. And Jesus' message is very consistent with the message in the Old Testament. Here I am. Here is the path to a life well lived with God. Here is the path to salvation, to forgiveness of sin, to blessing, to peace, to joy and hope. I am gathering a people who will follow me, and through them I will bless the nation. The God who was faithful to continuing to be faithful to his promises, that he will gather a people. He will gather individuals, you and me, and form a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And through those people, bless every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is still calling people to himself to bless the nations. You and I stand in the legacy. Here's the grace for us today. We don't have to hit rock bottom to turn back to God. But even if we do, the response is the same. Here's the response to reform and to renew. So right there where you are, examine yourself. If there are ways where you have strayed from faithfulness to the faithful God, there's no condemnation, there's no judgment right now. God is saying you can turn. You can turn. You can turn from your... I receive you, I forgive you, I restore you. That's what repentance means. It's to turn from the path you were on to the path that you were intended to be on, that you were made for. You can do that today. It's to reform. If there are ways in which you are exercising your life that are less than loving, less than loving of God, less than loving of the people, whether it's getting out of an echo chamber, whether it's growing in compassion for those who are vulnerable, whatever it is, you can reform your ways in Christ. God will empower you with the Spirit. And lastly, if your connection to God has grown stale or perfunctory or simply something that you've inherited from people uh, who you grew up with, 
or is just the thing that you did every day, and there's no actual life to it. Today, you can renew a commitment to God. You can renew a commitment to be faithful to him. You can make one or renew one if it grew stale over time. You can do that today, and you can do that whether you hit rock bottom or you feel like you're on their way there or you feel like you're just about to start the path. Reform, repent, renew. All of us have to do all three of these things multiple times in our lives. If there's one for you today, don't let any more time pass before you do it. The God who's faithful the God who blesses you, the God who shows you his favor is here to receive, to restore, and to rebuild. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you extend grace. Thank you, Lord, that when we turn away, you show mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you call us forth. Thank you, Lord, that you um, forgive. Thank you, Lord, that you bless. Lord, we want the blessing. We want the favor. We will, but more than that, we want to live in connection to you. We want to live the lives that we were made to live. So, Lord, in the ways that I need to repent today, would you bring conviction? In the ways that I need to reform, would you bring awareness? In the ways that uh, I need to renew, would you create a longing in me? And Lord, would you do that for my sisters and brothers? Lord, you've called us to be a people. You've called us to be a people who receive blessing and bless the people around us. This is that time of year where lots of people are ready to receive blessing. Our community is ready to receive blessing. Our community needs to receive blessing. Lord, we don't want anything in our lives to get in the way of you blessing the community through us. Lord, we are open vessels. Fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship?